Last week, we talked about the DNA of faith, right? Where does biblical faith come from? And we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We discussed how the law, the old covenant, was a ministry of death, Paul says. And that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so we talked about how regeneration, being born again, being made a new creation, given spiritual life, produces faith. And this faith is a gift of grace. It's not something we have deserved. It's not something we have earned. And then we discussed the marriage, the bond between faith and the word of God. That faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. If we're transformed by what we behold, we behold the glory of Christ today in his word. We grow in faith through sanctification by the word of God. And then we discussed how faith is really a beholding. That's why I love the song, I once was blind, now I see. I once was dead, right now I live. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ is shining, whether we see it or not. It's, it's like the sun. If you look at the sun and you see it, you're not blind. If you cannot see the sun, you are blind. But even for a blind person, the sun is still shining, right? So the glory of Christ is shining regardless of whether or not people are blind or not. He is shining indeed. And now as believers, we see this glory. We see the sun, S-O-N, with unveiled faces, and we're transformed by what we behold. In fact, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We are being transformed into the same image, which is Christ. So tonight, we continue our discussion on biblical faith by answering the question, what do I do with my faith? Now, this is a relevant question regardless of how mature you are. Regardless of how long you've been following the Lord, we, I like to remind us every now and then, I like to remind myself especially, I'm never more deserving of God's grace today than when I first got saved. And though I'm more like Christ because I'm being sanctified, I haven't arrived. And so I approach the Word of God, I approach the throne of God with humility, pleading for more grace, to know Him more, to love Him more, to behold him more. So the question, what do I do with my faith, for some of you, might be a question that you can answer and know and should know. And for that, I want to encourage you guys with reminders tonight, which we all need, and trust that the Lord will convict us and encourage us and strengthen us for things that are appropriate for us. And some of you may be new believers, or maybe you've been believers but never really been discipled, and you're going, okay, I'm saved, now what? What do I do? What, what's, what is this? I've been, my, I do see the glory of Christ now, right? I, I see Him, and so now, how do I live out my faith? And that's what tonight is on. What do I do with my faith? Now that, I'm see, now that I see, now that I'm being transformed, what do I do? And if you remember, we're leading to a very specific purpose and goal this year. We're leading towards how the Scriptures are sufficient for all things. We can have confidence in faith, and so we are to live our entire lives based on the Word of God. We are to be ambassadors for Christ that stand on a firm foundation and live, act, move, and breathe with a biblical worldview. So with proclamation of the truth as the goal, we must first make sure we understand the groundwork for being effective in the proclamation of this truth, living out our faith. So I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17 to start. And then we're going to flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to show us tonight four foundations for being a people 
of faith. So let's begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? What a humble statement. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now I want you to flip to chapter 4. Continuing this thought, we read all of chapter 3 last week, but we pick up now in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry, and I'll remind you, it's the ministry of the Spirit, freedom in Christ, the, the ministry that transforms because Christ is beautiful and glorious to you. Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do I do with my faith? Number one. To be a people of faith, we must understand the source of our ministry. You must understand the source of your ministry. Look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. We have this ministry by what? By the mercy of God. Chapter 4, verse 1 shows us the very ministry of faith that we have as people of faith is because God has been merciful. In other words, if it had not been for God's radical act of mercy in giving us new life in Christ, we would have no hope and we would have no ministry. When we talk about ministry here too, we are not talking or referring to Paul only as an apostle. This isn't a passage for only pastors to read. We know this because we're about to read in the coming weeks 2 Corinthians chapter 5 which says that we have been reconciled and now we are called to a ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. So this ministry is a global call for all believers and it is the ministry of reconciliation. And we have, all of us, this ministry of reconciliation by the mercy of God. Austin, you have no less of a ministry than I do. JJ, you have no less of a ministry than Pastor Jeff. You have a different calling, maybe, Right? But no less of a ministry. And the ministry that I have, the ministry that you have on the base, the ministry that you have at the swimming pool and potentially the mission field, who knows? Whatever it is, 
That's the ministry that God has given us. And the purpose is to reconcile broken people to God for His glory. And it's a gift. It is by God's mercy. The very ministry that we have as ambassadors for Christ in our world is a grace that is given to us. So, don't let that just be nonchalant. Think about this. The ministry of faith is a gift. We're coming up on Christmas. When you receive a gift, is anybody like, I don't want you to buy me something. Maybe you feel guilty if somebody buys you something that you don't want them to. Like if Gavin got me a gift and I I didn't give Gavin a gift, I'd be like, oh, dude, you didn't need to give me something. But deep down, if Herb decided that he wanted to give me his U.S. soccer sweatshirt and his U.S. sweatpants, which I made him an offer for tonight with money, and he refused. But if he decided to give me that gift, I would not be like, oh, I'm burdened by your gift. I would rejoice in the gift. A gift is something to rejoice in. And all gifts from God are gifts that we do not deserve. It's an undeserved gift, this ministry that we have. Now, this is a crucial foundation Because the way, listen to me, the way you look at your ministry is crucial to how you fulfill it. Is being an ambassador for Christ a burden to you? Or is it a privilege? Jordan Ball, is your ministry a burden to you or is it a privilege? Chase, is your ministry a burden to you or is it a privilege? Do you see... Your ministry as a burden, which is keeping you from what you truly want to do? If so, that means that you don't see ministry the way God sees it. You haven't received it as mercy, but you've rather been looking at it as punishment. Or something that's keeping you from what you would rather do. And when you view your ministry like this, you act like Jonah. This is what Jonah did. He wasn't happy with his call of ministry. He wasn't happy with going to a broken place and preaching a gospel that could reconcile them to God through repentance. He ran. And here's what happens. If you look at your ministry not as a gift of mercy from God, then you will run away, you will act in disobedience, and you may even quit. You'll for sure complain. But Paul encourages here in verse 1 to do just the opposite. In fact, Paul himself has given us a great example in the rest of his writings, in his own life. He's the one who said to live as Christ and to die is what? Gain. He's the one who said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ who lives in me. He said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He said, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is how Paul viewed his ministry. It was a gift. It was undeserved. And therefore, it was not a burden to Paul. It was a privilege. We should stop for a moment and think about that. What a privilege it is to live a sold-out life for the Lord through his ministry of reconciling lost sinners to himself so that they can be saved from an eternity in hell and can rather be in the fullness of joy in Christ forever. Now, when you look at ministry like that, do we dare call it a burden? I mean, how selfish and self-consumed and absorbed and ignorant and hateful would we have to be? How hateful would you have to be to consider the ministry of reconciliation a nuisance in your life? We must understand that this ministry is a grace given to us. And here's what's so beautiful about this. Because it is total grace, because it is total mercy, 
You are not called to this ministry because you were good enough or qualified. The ministry that you have is not because you met some qualification or JJ was better than Zach or Beth was better than Brooke or Chase was better than Daniel. The ministry that you've been called to is totally in spite of the fact that you've been a sinful, rebellious person against God. This should be so freeing in our ministry. Because sometimes I think it's pride and arrogance and selfishness that will keep us from being effective in our ministry. And sometimes it's fear and guilt and shame. How many people are enslaved to their past and are full of guilt and full of shame and full of fear? They're so overwhelmed by it and consumed by it that they become paralyzed to fulfilling their ministry that God has called them to do. They feel unworthy. They feel like they've screwed up too much, which means they have a wrong sense of the gospel. And then they would fear those who know their old self will call them out and embarrass them or hurt their testimony or whatever. One of the one of my favorite messages I've ever listened to, you're not going to believe this, it was not John Piper. Can you believe it, Beth Bailey? It was Matt Chandler. Ellen's favorite pastor in the world, right behind Pastor Jeff. And um, Matt Chandler, he gave a testimony, and it was about him acknowledging sin in his own past, not going to details and pulpit, but talking about even how he drives on this one road sometimes. He remembers a specific past relationship. And it's kind of this guilt and this shame, this fear and, you know, being exposed to who I used to be type of stuff like that. And the whole message was about preaching the gospel to yourself. And I'll tell you what, as a guy who came here at 20 years old, 20, 10 years ago, I was 20, I was a youth pastor and was single and coached high school soccer and hung out with people in my youth group because they were my age and they were my friends. I've got all kinds of convictions and guilt, and shame, and wish that I could go back and be a married Dave, and a man of God who's more sanctified today, and be a better pastor, and a better leader to these people, that I can't. And if I allow myself, I'll be crippled by my fear, and my guilt, and my shame, but that's not the gospel, because the ministry I have today at Cornerstone Church is not because I earned it, or deserved it. It's what causes me sometimes, I, I talk about it before, sit in my office, and just cry, thinking, I don't deserve this. Why have you done this for me? The ministry that we have is because God has been merciful. So do not let your past be a paralyzing thing. Listen, God has called you to a ministry of reconciling broken people to God. Who better to use than broken people who have been reconciled to God? You take a perfect person who hasn't messed up, which doesn't exist, but you take a really good, high, moral, legalistic person to go to a broken person and try to reconcile them to God, and what happens? You can't relate. But if you can come and say, listen, I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, now I see, I was dead, now I'm alive. I used to be rebellious against God and love sex and love drugs and love the world and love anger and love cussing and love this kind of music, and now I'm totally different, and I don't miss it at all. I found greater joy in Christ. That's the testimony that God speaks through for the glory of God, and this is how broken people are reconciled to God. Your past should not disqualify you or disable you. God will not allow your past to cause his mission to fail. He's greater than your sin. He's greater than your past. He used Abram to be the father of many nations. Abram's qualifications when he was called from the land of Ur, he was an idol worshiper. He used Rahab, a prostitute. He used David, who was a murderer and an adulterer. He used Paul as a persecutor of the church. God gets glory by using broken people. And to nail this home, I want to remind you of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26-31. through 31. 
Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Anybody fit that so far? That's me. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, here's the reason God does this. Here's the reason ministry is a mercy. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse 31, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I say, hallelujah to that. God is restoring me to him. I'm being transformed as I gaze at Christ. He's using Dave Aubrey, a broken vessel, to display his glory in a broken world. And that is how God has chosen to reach a broken world. Remember, this ministry is not the law, it's the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So number one, to be a people of faith, you must understand the source of your ministry. Number two, to be a people of faith, you must know the truth. Say, know the truth. Know the truth. Look back at our text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. We've renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with god's word but by the open statement of the what truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god now this should cause us to immediately remember second corinthians chapter 2 verse 17 where paul says we're not like so many peddlers of god's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by god in the sight of god we speak in christ So in these two verses, Paul uses the words cunning, tampering, and peddling. Now, peddling means an adulterer of the word. Somebody unfaithful to the text. Someone who's twisting and changing God's word. But you cannot twist and change God's word. God's word is God's word. Truth is truth. The Holy Spirit reveals it to us. And if we are to be effective people of faith, we must know God's word. Faith... If you want to be an effective person of faith, faith comes from hearing and hearing from what? The Word of God. The Word of Christ. We must know the truth. It is non-negotiable as a person of faith. Now there might be some of you tonight who say, that is discouraging because I feel like I'm not as good of a reader. I feel like I don't have as strong of a mind. I feel like I don't have as much time. And you actually may be a decent steward of time. It just might be a season that is busy for you. Or you find it hard to retain information. Or you don't understand the things that you are reading. What I would say to all those things is pray and seek help. Be diligent. And God is gracious. Listen, if God is requiring you to know the truth, God will make a way and provide a grace for you to know the truth. And if you have some kind of inability or shortcoming, God is sovereign over that. And God is merciful. And the ministry he's given to you, he's going to use in a mighty way according to what you can do through Christ. Paul shows us one of the ways that this happens. How can we know the truth? Notice what he says first before he even talks about truth. Renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. Think about that term, disgraceful. Disgraceful. Graceful. It's the enemy of grace. In other words, don't live in a way or teach in a way that is opposed to grace. That's why the ministry of the law was a ministry of death. That's why the Judaizers were called out by Paul because what they were teaching and preaching went against grace. This, is, this means as a believer, 
to know and understand God's grace and yet to continue to live in sin is being an enemy of the cross and should cause us to wonder if we've truly been reborn. If you are living in sin continually and you have no desire to change, you have no desire for other things, that is fruit of the flesh, not the spirit. And what you should do in that moment is you should get on your knees and you should plead with God to reveal the glory of Christ to you and that you would desire the things of God, not the earth, and you should repent and turn from your sin and confess your sin and plead with God to be merciful to you. What does Paul say in Romans 6 too? He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And again, this would be crucial to his Jewish hearers who are indeed the ones tampering with God's word and twisting it to fit their own liking to their own benefit. These men were showing that they were not saved. They were a disgrace to grace and were peddlers or adulterers of God's word. Now Paul tells us perfectly in Romans chapter 6 later on, verse 12 to 14, he says this, So let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen, it doesn't say that eliminating all sin from our body is is possible. On this earth, we are living in a broken world, in broken vessels that is being renewed and sanctified. He says, let not sin, what? Reign. Rule. Be Lord of your life. Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. If something is making you do something, it is ruling over you. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life for generation. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's ministry. Sin will have no dominion over you, he continues, since you are not under law but under grace. We have this ministry by God's mercy and are now under his grace, so we ought to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways and treat the word of God with spirit-led care and accuracy. So how can we have effective ministries of reconciliation if we do not understand the gospel? If we do not understand the word of God, how foolish would we be and how foolish to think that we've been reborn seen the beauty and glory of God in Christ Jesus, and we know because of last week that we see this in the Word, and yet have no desire to be students of the Word. Rather, what we need to do is stop trying to learn every statistic about our favorite sports team. AJ, you're welcome. I didn't call it football this time. Every sports team. We should, we should not seek to binge watch a television series, spend hours a day playing video games, waste hours on social media and entertainment. This shows that we have a beholding problem. We talked last week. We're being transformed into what we behold. We're transformed in those images as opposed to Christ because we're looking at the wrong glory. What Paul said last week is fading glory. Rather, what we we should do is behold the glory of Christ in the Word of God. Let it seep into us, transform us, teach us, and lead us into sanctification and a strong ministry. To to bring this home, I want us to look at John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. If you're a quick flipper, go there. John chapter 8. This is one of the first verses that Abby and I memorized together with the app Fighter Verse. 
with the cheesy songs. I've, I've sang it before. And uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says something unbelievable. He says this. If you abide, say abide. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now let's read that verse a different way. The truth will set you free if you know the truth. And if you know the truth, you must be abiding in my word. And if you're abiding in my word, you're truly my disciples. If you want to be set free from viewing ministry as a burden, if you want to be set free from addiction to lesser glories, if you want to be set free from your past guilt and shame, you must know the truth. And knowing the truth by abiding in God's word shows that you are actually a disciple of Christ. This verse shows us how we know the truth. We know it by abiding in the word. So listen to these verses briefly. I've preached about the word before. I'm not going to do it again tonight, but let me remind you of a few verses. John 15, 4 through 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 1 John 2.14 I write to you young men. If you're a young man, say what up. up? I write to you... (laughs) (laughs) I write to you young men because you are strong. How do I know you're strong? 1 John 2.14 The word of God abides in you. Remember when Paul says physical strength and discipline is of some value, right? But there's a greater discipline as being a man of the word. Uh, you talk about younger guys wanting to look good, wanting to be strong, wanting to be fit. This creeps up. I'm 30. I'm starting to get my hashtag dad bot. I'm working on it. And I'm having to work harder to stay in shape, to stay fit, to stay thin. I, I'm not doing my push-ups. I've got no chest and bicep, biceps, Rudy. All right? I'm losing it. But I'm stronger than I've ever been in the Word of God. And I'm unwilling to give up that time to do push-ups and sit-ups and consume my life with that. Now, there is something about to be said about physical health and being disciplined with your body. I'm not neglecting that. But the Word of God says, you want to be a strong young man? Abide in the Word of God. And when you abide in the Word of God, uh, uh, John says, and you will overcome the evil one. A young man who wants to be strong... And a young man who wants to stop being addicted to impurities, abide in the word and you'll overcome the evil one. Psalm 119 verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 105, the word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. We must get in the word. We must meditate on the word. We must pray over the word. We must study the word. We must delight in the word. We must memorize the word. We must talk about the word. With people. But this word of knowing the truth, right, goes beyond just what we just talked about. Because Paul says, to go further, that he doesn't peddle in the word. He's not a peddler of the word. He isn't an adulterer of the word. He's not unfaithful to the word of God. Now, what's amazing is this term has specific connotations, which means to remove the offense of truth. Being a peddler of God's word is to remove the offense of the truth for the sake of personal gain. In other words, one of the dangers of seeing ministry as a burden and not knowing the truth is that you remove the offense of the gospel for the sake of making the word of God more palatable for people 
or sometimes changing it to alter some form of religion that you are accustomed to or to worship a Jesus that you have created in your mind or for your own gain or for your own pride. The reality is that the truth of God's word, the truth of the cross, the truth of Jesus is an offense. The Bible says it. We shouldn't oppose that reality. It is an offense. The gospel is not palatable for everyone. Not not everyone chews on the gospel and delights in it and swallows it. Some people spit it out. Some people hate the taste. Some people hate the smell, the fragrance, the aroma, want nothing to do with it. And they reject and rebel against God. Not everyone will respond to the truth of God in humility or with great delight. Not everyone will see the glory of Christ. And this leads us to number three. To be a people of faith, we must proclaim the truth. Say proclaim the truth. Proclaim the truth. Number three. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Back in our text. For we are not like so many, many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And then chapter 4 Verse 2 tells us that we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience by the open statement of truth. But look at the deeper context in these two places of what Paul is saying. Based on where we left off in point 2 and knowing the truth. Because in chapter 2, look back at chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it says this. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, those who are perishing were a fragrance from death to death. To the others, those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. We see the same thing in chapter 4. Go back to chapter 4. Read verse 3 and 4 with me. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to whom? Those who are perishing. Because in their case, the God of this world, and by the way, this is not a passage that reveals to us that Satan has authority and sovereignty in this world. Satan has authority as much as God allows him to. He is submissive to God. So there, we don't have a guy, we don't have a, a, the evil one, the enemy, running rampant in total freedom around this earth. It's not happening, which means all the things that he does from the Tower of Babel, from Adam, from Joseph being sent to Egypt, all these things God has used for the greater good of his glory. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we see here is that our proclamation of the truth will have two types of responses. Hatred and rejection because of blindness or humility and love because light has broken. And this is why peddling with the word makes no sense. Think about this. We begin to peddle with the word, become an adulterer of the word when we want different responses than what we're getting. But God shows us what the responses will be, and there's only two. We are not to lose heart over this, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1. We are not to think that we have a better plan to get more converts and servants of Christ. We are not to think that we have somehow outsmarted God and we know how to reach people better in 2017 than He does. We're not to think that God, or that we can know people more than God, or that we can love people more than God. This is foolishness. We are dealing with God's people that He has created, and with His Word, 
He has revealed how we should reach them. God knows best. What does John say? That his sheep hear his what? And they come to him. Those who do not come to him do not hear his voice because they are not among his sheep. They are not his sheep. Those who come hear his voice and respond because they are his sheep. Those who do not come do not hear his voice. They are not his sheep. Listen, you ready? Listen, listen, listen. How does John tell us the sheep will come? How will the sheep come? When they what? When they hear his voice. This is why we preach Christ and him crucified. This is why we don't become an adulterer to the word. Why we don't peddle with the word. Why we don't cunningly tamper with it to make it more palatable. If we preach anything but Christ because we think we should get on the level of the hearer, you're not preaching the word of Christ. And if the person is a sheep, it's not going to respond because it's not the voice of Christ. We preach Christ. We do not call God sheep through man's voice. False teaching leads to false converts. Now you'll say, But Dave, people reject the intensity of God's word. People don't understand the fullness of God's word. They need to hear our testimony. Our testimony is what converts. They need to be spoken to on their level. That's what produces converts. They need to get to the point where they can swallow the more radical stuff. Be be calm first. Baby steps, buddy. I'm not talking about being tactful. I'm not talking about it being intentional. I'm not talking about knowing the person you're talking to. I'm talking about avoiding specific texts or truths of the gospel. I'm talking about maybe compromising the truth of God's word and the gospel to make it more appealing to what you think they might respond to. That's what I'm referring to. What does Paul say about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18? It says this. I love this. This is one of the best verses on preaching the gospel. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Everybody needs to go there. We're all going to read this together. We're going to read verse 18 through 24. You pumped, Dan? Dan's pumped. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. It pleased God through the manipulation and smarts and intelligence of what we know. It pleased God through the incredible education and years of training and knowing people better than God. No! It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What's the folly he's referring to? It is the gospel. The word of the cross, verse 18. The folly that that God speaks that he uses to preach to save those who believe in verse 21. If you look at verse 18, that folly is preaching the word of the cross. Jews demand what? Greeks seek wisdom. Jews say, don't give me the cross, show me a sign. Jews say, don't preach the cross, reason with me. We preach Christ crucified. <laughs> now you might, this, is, this is the best text to show the dangers of pragmatic approaches. 
We're deciding not to give signs, not to give logic and reason and wisdom. Rather, we're going to preach a stumbling block. I'm going to preach something, Joe, that's going to make you trip and fall on your face. (laughs) I'm going to preach a stumbling block to the Jews and something that is foolish to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, because my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The only thing that saves is the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed, God the Father opening eyes and spirit breathing new life. There is no other way, as John 14, 6 says. There's no other way, as Romans chapter 10 tells, tells us. We need to be away with the liberal approach of pragmatism that says if it works, it's good. There's a lot of things that work today that are not biblical. They don't have a lasting view. What happens is you're, you're throwing pieces of the gospel with a little bit more palatable approach. You've taken something that people don't like, the cross which tastes bad, and you put a lot of oregano on it, some Parmesan, Parmesan cheese, you've deep fried it, and they're putting it in their mouth, they're chewing go. I like this. This tastes good. And all of a sudden, it's the seed that has been scattered in soil. They're going, this is awesome. And they walk out, and the troubles of this world hit them. All of a sudden, the taste wears off, and they're going, this is the cross. This is what I wanted. And they spit it out. False teaching leads to false converts. Palatable approaches of pragmatic approaches, liberal approaches to preaching the gospel and avoiding the stumbling block of Christ does not last with people. That's why there's a massive revolving door in churches today. People in, chewing, mmm, I like that. I didn't like that so much. Let's find another one. Walking to church, ooh, I like that. Mmm, didn't like that so much. Let's walk to another church. Ooh, I like that. Didn't like that so much. Chewing, spitting, chewing, spitting, chewing, spitting. Jews demand the signs. Greeks demand the wisdom because they believe the cross is foolishness. And today in America, we would say, okay, Let's look at the Jews and the Gentiles of our days of our day today. Those who are seeking signs, those who are seeking wisdom. And you have seeker-friendly and seeker-sensitive churches now that go, okay, let's manipulate them. Let's change words. Beth Moore just had a tweet, by the way, and I don't know if some of you love Beth Moore or don't love Beth Moore. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not willing to call the, throw these people under the bus and call them false teachers, but Beth Moore just had a tweet that talked about how we have a Noah syndrome where we close ourselves in an ark and we close ourselves in with a kind. What we need to do is open up a window of peace and a dove to come in. God shut Noah into the ark. It was part of his purpose. God was saving those people. You can't have that kind of approach to scripture. You know what that does? That makes about a thousand people retweet and feel really good inside. But it is not the gospel. And so you've got to be careful. You've got, listen, you better be careful with Dave Aubrey. Right? You better go home and be a Berean and study the Word of God. There are people who are really good at manipulating situations to make people feel good and have these little 30-second clips which they can grab onto and build theologies off of it. But this is not the gospel. You would say, let's manipulate situations. Let's show them miracles. Let's soften our services to make it more palatable for the lost person. But what does Paul say? Preach to them the very thing that they think is foolish. This is how you'll get them. There's no other way. If they are believers for any other reason, they aren't believers. This is all so that the one who boasts cannot say, I'm saved because it was explained to me really well. 
I'm saved, I believe, because I saw somebody healed. I believe because my pastor's a really good charismatic teacher. I believe because the worship music really moved me. But rather they say, I've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who died for me, purchased me, has reconciled me to God. I once was blind, now I see. I once was dead, now I live. I give all the glory to God. We do this, as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 5, so that what we proclaim is not ourselves. Chapter 4, verse 5. But rather, Jesus Christ as Lord. We are His servants for Jesus' sake, Paul tells us in verse 5. We already talked a couple weeks ago about how you see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That today people are lovers of self. They're lovers of money. They're proud. They're arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. They're ungrateful. They're unholy. They're heartless. They're unappeasable. They're slanderous. They're without self-control. They're brutal. They're not loving good. They're treacherous. They're reckless. They're swollen with conceit. They're lovers of pleasure, pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Paul tells us, To now build our services in such a way that they will enjoy them. No, you want to know what Paul told the pastor in Ephesus? Avoid such people. Avoid them! Among them, and and unless you think, okay, but Dave, this isn't in the context of the church. Among them are those who creep into the households, capture weak women, burden with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. This is where house church took place, in the homes. Timothy was a pastor in a home. Don't let these people into your home. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, or later in that passage, 2 Timothy 3, follow my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Follow my persecutions and my sufferings. He tells him to cling to the sacred writings, which is breathed out by God, just like he breathed life into Timothy. He tells Timothy that the word of God will teach him. It will reprove him. It will correct him. It will train him. That Timothy will be complete and equipped. And just as the word does this for you, Timothy... It will do this through you in the same way to others. So preach the word. Proclaim the truth. Don't sway from it. Cling to it. And then he tells Timothy earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I love this. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. To exhortation. Building up one another in the word of God. And teaching. He tells Timothy. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. So that all may see your progress. And keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, Timothy, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. We must do the same. In other words, the assumption there is if this is what will allow for him to show that he's saved and for people to respond to the saving message, if the importance of how this happens is by clinging and teaching accurately the word and persisting in this, immersing yourself in this, then to do the opposite, to become a peddler of God's word, to tamper and to become cunning and to become manipulative and to be preaching something that's more palatable, has connotations where maybe you are showing you don't know the word of God. And maybe those who are responding aren't responding to the word of God. You know, Muslims can have some of the most incredible emotional experiences in the world. You know, that Mormons get goosebumps too. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses have quite the experience together. I went to a Jehovah's Witness service. At the end of the service, the guy came up and asked me, I didn't know it was a service, uh, I thought it was a ga- gathering, which it is, and that's what they call their services. I learned quickly. 
but I was there, and I got to experience the whole thing. It's like two and a half hours long. You think our services are long. Get over it. And um, it, the whole thing is crowd participation. And at the end, the guy comes up to me, and he says, well, did you enjoy it? And I said, I'm grateful that you guys incurred or, uh, you know, were friendly to me and welcomed me and all that kind of stuff. Like, how do you respond? Like, no, I didn't enjoy it. I'm not going to say that. And he says, well, I'll tell you something. If people don't learn anything from these meetings, they're stupid. And I thought, man, there are people who are more convinced of their faith than we have in, in Christian churches today. And so you can't base it on these experiences and these emotions and these moments. It is based on the truth of God's word. Paul tells Timothy, immerse yourself in the teaching, not the moments. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Persist in this. Exhort, teach the word of God. Don't be a peddler of God's word. Don't be cunning. Don't tamper with it. Preach the word. This is what brings saving faith to people. We must do the same. And then finally, number four, as we close this evening. So to be a people of faith, number one, understand the source of your ministry, God's mercy. Amen. Number two, know the truth. Number three, proclaim the truth. Do not try to convince somebody apart from the cross of Christ. And number four, rest in God's sovereignty. The key to resting in God's sovereignty is being a God-centered people. If you're self-centered, you're going to find it hard to rest in God's sovereignty. If you're people-centered, you're going to find it hard to rest in God's sovereignty. If you're God-centered, you just bathe in the peace. You sleep with it. You eat it. You drink it. In the wildest of circumstances, life is calm. And it's joyful. It's exciting. Because it's not up to you and God is going to do a work and he's working through you and he's working in you and you just live in obedience and respond to him in faith and you're diligent to confirm your election, your calling as Peter says, you run after Christ, you let go of the things that cling so closely and the weight that entangles, the sin that entangles you, the weight that drags you down. You live in grace, you enjoy the mercy of God which are new every morning and you just Rest in God's sovereignty. Chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians verse 17 says, We speak in Christ in the sight of God. In the sight of God. You also see this in chapter 4. It says we speak the open statement of truth in the sight of God. Verse 5 says we do this for Jesus' sake. We do it for the glory of God. The moment we become self-centered or people-centered, we become a disgrace to grace and we become an enemy of the cross. Because Jesus is not first and foremost for people, he's for God. It's the only way he can be for people. If Jesus was for people first, he would be an idolater. Right? And he can't be. God's love for us is an overflow out of his love for himself. We therefore must be a God-centered people. You cannot truly be a biblically people-centered person if you are not God-centered first. In other words, a regard for the glory of Christ is a far higher motive than regard for the good of men. And you cannot have a high regard for the glory of Christ or the only way that you can have a high regard for the heart of men is if you have a high regard for the glory of Christ. We get it backwards today. 
And this is why I'm picking on churches. I know it. We've been seeking to be biblical in our own church. Ask me if we've arrived. Ask me. No. But you know what? I look back at what God has done. And I praise the Lord for what's happening in this place. And I look at your faces and I see how God is moving in your lives. And I see that we are seeking to be biblical and God-centered. And God is going to continue to lead us and change us and renew us. And I pray it is the same thing for all the churches in this community who claim to be Christ-centered and to preach the gospel. I pray that God does it across this nation, across this world. But I think of churches today. We are so quick to peddle in God's word and become adulterers of the word. This is why churches are full of exhausted pastors. This is why churches are full of exhausted servants because we're constantly trying to please people. Keep people, reach people, get new people, please them. And it's this nonstop cycle of, we need a new person. Here's a new person. All right, please them and keep them. We lost them, we're exhausted, we're burdened. We need more new people. We get new people, please them and keep them. And we just work ourselves to death as if it is all up to us. And we're so people-centered that we don't realize the very thing we're trying to do is the very thing that's pushing them out the door. They don't know it, we don't know it, and it's become people-centered across the nation and this world. This is why there's so much entertainment in churches. Worship service on Sunday mornings has become now the main means of reaching the world. But this is not biblical. Bear with me. Sunday morning worship or Sabbath worship or the weekly gathering of the saints is not the means God has used biblically to reach the world. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that services, the gathering of the saints, is a place where you are to make it appealing to the lost person. You won't find it anywhere in Scripture. And yet, how much of our money in church is spent on doing just that? How much of our hiring of pastors and staff members is just on that? We have it so backwards. And you might say... Dave, if you really believe that, then you are anti-reaching the world. No way I'm not. No way I'm not. I just believe that there's a biblical way to do it. And guess what? It's not her by inviting your friends from Redners to come to church so they can hear a gospel message and be saved. And you want the pastor to preach something that's a little more palatable. Don't preach about too much sin. Don't preach about giving. (laughs) By the way, have you ever noticed... Preachers are afraid to preach on giving because it will turn lost people away. (laughs) Doesn't even make any sense. How does a lost person glorify God in tithing? They can't. They're not living in Christ. Anybody that gives is a moral good. Congratulations. Charity. The world gives. Millionaires today give to, to charities and people who are starving. Who cares? We do so because we're bringing the gospel to people. Listen, you look at the church. The church is not the means of reaching the world as a gathering of saints. The church is the means of reaching the world when all of you walk out these doors tonight. This is a place where we preach God's word. We sing together. We pray together. We plead together. We encourage one another. We beg God to move. We become more equipped. And then when when we leave... We go to our ministry, which has been given to us by God's mercy, where we know the truth, and now we're proclaiming the church. We're proclaiming the truth. 
It's always interesting to me when there are people who are frustrated because the church is not, beca- not being as sensitive as they need to be. And, and by the way, I'm not throwing... Lost people should come on Sundays and can come. Right? That's fine. I don't know who they're going to worship, but they can come for an experience. And I pray that God, through His Holy Spirit, will convict their hearts and open up their eyes to the truth and they can be saved and respond to God and worship. Praise God. Right? That's awesome if that happens. But if you are relying on the church or Sunday morning service to do that, you're wildly confused about the ministry that God has called you to. And all of a sudden, if this is how you base your songs, how you base your sermon series, how you base your environments, now you have become a people-centered, and let me, let me correct this, a lost people-centered church. And how can you glorify God when you're seeking to please lost people? And again, I go back to proclaim the truth. My sheep hear my voice, and they come to me. Preaching the word of Christ, the foolishness of the cross of Christ is what draws people in. Now, for those who are being saved, the fragrance of Christ is a beautiful aroma. But for those who are perishing, it is a fragrance of death. Meaning this God knows those who are being saved. And God knows who those who are perishing. Anybody in here know whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world? Cassie, do you know? Me neither. Therefore, we ought to plead with people to the dying breath that they would turn and come to Christ as Savior and Lord. But this part is totally up to God. The work of regeneration belongs to God. This is why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, he relates the miracle of being born again to the miracle of creation. God who shown in our hearts, he says, is the same thing as when God said, let there be light. <laughs> this is really cool. Because what happens when you, this Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, we read it tonight. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. God has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. When you're saved, God has shown light into their hearts. The veil is now taken off. In other words, I love thinking about the mind of God. Let there be light. And creation was a foreshadowing of Caroline Richard is dead in her sin. Let there be Light. Veil's gone. Beautiful, beautiful America. God is creating life. God does all the heart change. He gets all the glory. This is why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, thanks be to God. John 3, 19 tells us, light has come into the world, but men loved what? Because their deeds were evil. You see, the word of God is quick, and it is active, and it is powerful, but it only does two things in the context of life and salvation. It either saves or it destroys. If that is offensive, it's offensive. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of God only saves people or destroys people. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral position. And this is up to God. 
We're ministers of reconciliation, pleading with God. And we do not lose heart. We should not be discouraged. As Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have the privilege of ministry by God's mercy. We must not be an adulterer of God's word. When people criticize our church or a pastor or a message or people aren't getting saved according to our expectations, it may actually not be that there's a deficiency in the ministry. It may just be that people are blind and love darkness. Our integrity in ministry is that in the midst of people's blindness, we continue to preach the truth faithfully and plead that people would turn from their sin, repent, and believe in Christ. All the while, we pray without ceasing that God would do what only God can do. God's sovereignty over who is saved and who isn't should not hinder us or offend us. First of all, who is man that God should answer to us? Second of all, knowing that God will do what he has set forth to do and he will accomplish it ought to give us great courage and boldness and joy knowing that his work will be completed through us. We're the messengers, we're the means, God speaks through us, but the change that happens in heart, that is up to God, therefore we should not be burdened by the ministry, we should not walk away from speaking the truth or try to make it more palatable, we preach faithfully trusting that God and his sovereignty will do what only God can do, and we can find great joy and rest in that. I want to end with this, uh, this one final thought based on our text tonight, that has, was probably the most encouraging part for me. It's good to end on a good note. This is, this, I was talking to John Clark, Clark earlier today. He's like, oh man, you got refuge tonight? Oh, sweet, you know, Thanksgiving week, blah, 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 blah. Excited about that. What are you preaching on? And I was driving, and I was like, well, let me see if I can give you the four uh, parts by heart. And I got to this point, and I had already parked my car in the driveway, and I was upstairs to get ready for refuge, and I started jumping. Because it was like, this is this, your word, uh, this is just good. So this is my favorite part. This is the part that for me was like, yes, I can move forward in confidence. Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not what? We do not lose heart. And I want us to think about this statement in the context of all that we've discussed tonight. Do not lose heart. Now go back to chapter 2 with me. Verse 14. Paul says, Thanks be to God, watch this, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Triumphal procession. When Paul was writing this in Rome, when Rome would go to war and win a battle or a victory, what they would do is they would make their homage back to their land, their city, and they, with all their soldiers and their leader, would parade, have a procession down the streets of these cities. And what this was is a victory parade. And because they've won the war or the battle, they would parade these streets, going from town to town, burning incense to please the gods for their victory. Now, when people on the streets watching this parade would smell the fragrance, some would smell the fragrance of life, some would smell the fragrance of death. For those who are on the winning side of the battle and were for Rome, 
when they would smell the aroma and the incense, they would go, victory. Those who are on the losing side of the battle would smell it and think of death and bondage and slavery. Now Paul is saying, knowing this of what happens in Rome in this day, Paul's saying, thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. Now, I want you to imagine, before I get into what this means for us, Paul says do not lose heart with this ministry. I want you to imagine a Roman citizen who is glad in the victory of Rome, who's sitting or standing on the side of a street, and they smell the incense of victory, and all of a sudden they go, we won. I'm burdened. I should probably join the parade hold up an incense stink. Oh, I have freedom still. This really stinks. Would that make any sense? This, this is why Paul says we do not lose heart. Now, they would know there were going to be more battles to come, but they've been on the winning side. They're not parading. They're growing as their victory increase. Now what, what God is saying through Paul here in this text is that God is leading us, those who are saved, in a triumphal procession. In other words, we're on the winning side and God is leading us with Christ uh, at the head. Christ is taking us. We're on earth. We are being uh, led on a procession through earth, passing from city to city, workplace to workplace, village to village, neighborhood to neighborhood, grocery store to grocery store, gas station to gas station, with Christ's victory. And we are a fragrance to be an aroma to those around, around us, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the victory and the freedom that is won in Christ. And here's what's really cool. You can join our team. Confess your sins, repent, believe in Christ, turn to Christ, confess Him as Lord and Savior, and we have the confidence that Christ, who is leading the procession, when He calls out, they come. Those who belong to Him, come. This is why we do not lose heart. Oh, sure, there's going to be more battles. Absolutely, but think about this even further, a little deeper. Here's what happened. God, when He made Adam, made Adam in His what? Image, in His likeness. Adam fell and was separated from God. God goes on mission to redeem a people back to him, reconcile them back to God to be in right relationship and to bear correctly the image of the rightful Adam once again. And he does this through an offspring named whom? Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who did what Adam and you and I could not do. He goes to the cross He pays for our sin. He raises from the dead. And now he is leading a processional of all those whom he has redeemed and reconciled to God from this side of glory, leading us in triumphal procession all the way to God, saying, I have restored, redeemed, bought back the image bearers. They're being transformed into my image, conformed to my image. And we are doing this for your glory. And here's what's so cool. The fragrance that would burn in Roman uh, processionals was to appease the gods. But we are the incense, the fragrance being burned. 
And we're doing it to please God. And so we are literally Christ's ambassador, God's ambassadors. We are literally being conformed to the image of Christ. And therefore, as we go, we do not lose heart. We have great hope because we have victory in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. And we know that as we spread this aroma, this fragrance, which is first and foremost to God, in the meantime, as God is calling people, those who belong to him will come and so we faithfully preach the gospel. We realize that this ministry is a mercy of God. We know the truth. We proclaim the truth. And ultimately, we rest in God's sovereignty, knowing that he will accomplish what he has set forth to accomplish.